Future Church, Part 2, Making Disciples, The Seven Laws of the Upper Room, Chapter 6, The Law of Mission. Real church growth starts with a culture of mission, not worship. Imagine that you were being forced to go away from your church for a long time, and you did not know when you would ever be back. You might be battling a terrible disease, or you might serve in a country with anti-Christian persecution, and you could be thrown into prison at any moment. In any case, you are about to lose touch with your flock, and you want to prepare them for that. You conclude that one part of preparing your people for your departure is to make a list of the most important truths to remember, the things you never, ever want them to forget, the first things that anyone new to the faith should get to know. This isn't a random thought experiment. It's been a common occurrence in the history of the church ever since Jesus gave his disciples important instructions just before he went away in John chapters 14 through 17. So, if you had to leave a legacy in the form of a list, how would you kick it off? What is item number one? What principle at the top sets the tone for the whole and puts it all in perspective? One group over 350 years ago started their lists with this historic statement, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is an impressive 13 words. Contemplating them makes me feel like I'm on the top of a mountain of a cold, brilliant day, surveying the rocky, snowy majesty all around. Man's chief end, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. It is immense, sweeping, awe-inspiring. It is worship. It makes sense to say that worship comes first, because God comes first, and God deserves to be worshipped, glorified, enjoyed forever. If I were writing a creed or a confession or a catechism, maybe I would start there too. But when it comes to the seven laws of the upper room, I am not starting with worship. In fact, if I knew I would soon be unable to communicate with churches anymore, I could only share a short list of truths for them to remember. The very first thing I would want them to hear is that real church growth does not start with worship. That might sound crazy, maybe even arrogant. God is awesome. Shouldn't any list of important truths for the church to remember start with how magnificent God is? My reply is that we know how great God is by what He does, and what He does is pursue us on a mission to make us His own. He was on mission when He made us, and on a mission when He saved us. He sent Jesus on that mission, and Jesus sent His disciples on that mission. Someone told you and me about salvation in Jesus because they were on that mission. Now you and I are on that same mission today. It's only because God was on mission to win us for himself that we learned to worship him. It's only because he saved us that we praise him. In the same way, when we join the mission and live it out, worship always follows in its wake. In light of this truth, I propose the first law of the upper room, Real church growth starts with a culture of mission, not worship. Note to the audio listener, there is a sidebar that reads, Read more about how the Bible frames the relationship between God's mission and our worship at futurechurchbook.com forward slash bonus. Again, link will be in the show notes. When worship comes first. Every word in the law of mission is critical, but I direct your attention first to the word starts. 
In organized disciple-making, growth starts with a culture of mission, not worship. If you want worship, mission must take priority. That is where you have to begin. Because if you start with a culture of mission, you get worshipers. But if you start with a culture of worship, you get worship services. Between them lies all the difference in the world. As I have already described, for a generation or more, church leaders have measured growth principally, if not exclusively, by the number of people who attend worship services. As I recounted in my book, Innovating Discipleship, when I ask leaders how they want their church to be different in two years, I almost always get variations on two words, more people, that is, higher attendance, especially at weekend worship. In addition, the common church planting model has rested heavily on, if you build it, they will come, worship services. The idea is, make worship services, get disciples. In other words, church growth starts with a culture of worship. Evidence that the worship service is central to a church's culture lies in the volume of financial, physical, and human resources it insatiably demands to keep going week after week. The more the worship service succeeds in amassing growth, the hungrier the worship machine gets and the more institutional wherewithal it sucks into its gravitational pull, especially when the pressure is on to make each weekend more spectacular than the one before. Dave Rhodes and I have coached hundreds of new permission-era churches, including more than a few megachurches and gigachurches. We always probe the question of how much time and energy goes into weekend service delivery. One time, David queried one of the largest churches in the country, and the staff replied, 95%. That is not uncommon for a church of any size, but it is certainly amplified when you gather people by the thousands. Dave likes to pose the challenge. If 80 plus percent of your church's time, energy, and effort goes into making Sunday morning happen, is it a church or a production company? The Unintended Messages of Worship Services How can it be that a gathering to glorify God doesn't produce the disciple-making fruit that the worship service itself intends? How is it that worship for the purpose of mission can actually frustrate mission? and true worship as well. It does so by communicating silent messages to participants that are much more powerful than the messages spoken in words. The medieval church adopted a Latin motto, Lex ordani, lex credendi. Translated, it means, the law of prayer is the law of belief. What the church regularly does when it gathers to worship and pray, before, during, and after anything is said, communicates more about what the church believes than what it says during the gathering. The context through which the church is communicating communicates more than the content itself. I would restate the idea today to say how you do worship services somehow informs everything else about following Jesus. We can compare the idea to Marshall McLuhan's famous phrase, the medium is the message. The nature of the worship environments that we draw people into, the medium, has an effect on their beliefs and actions, the message, that is far greater than the impact of what we tell them in that worship service. Different worship environments communicate different messages, to be sure. Think of the different messages sent by a Eucharist Mass with a 10-minute homily, a Smoke and Lasers Rock concert with a 20-minute pep talk, 
and a 35-minute expositional sermon with an acoustic warm-up. But there are certain unintended messages commonly sent by churches of every style that start with a culture of worship rather than a culture of mission. Church is a place you go to versus a family on mission everywhere. Church is a part of your week, month, and year versus a family on mission every day. Church is a dispensary of services versus a productive community. Worship is for inspiration and enjoyment versus pleasing God. Ministry is for professionals versus the opportunity of every believer. Service means activities that keep the organization running versus actions that kindly help one's neighbor. An unbeliever's first point of contact with the church is the largest programmed event versus their relationship with a believing friend outside church walls. Every one of these messages reacts like static interference with what the Bible teaches, which is the very thing we are trying to convey in that worship service. These unintentional messages do not, quote, equip the saints for the work of ministry, unquote. Ephesians 4, verse 12, ESV. They may even excuse them from the work of ministry. We might preach the opposite of these messages, but the medium speaks louder than we do. While we are shouting, we are really whispering. There are indeed gatherings for worship in future church, but they send a different message because they start from a different place. Church planters leading from the upper room do not launch worship services to draw in disciples. Instead, they make disciples who worship. That is God's mission, and the law of mission means cultivating a community of mission as the starting point for real church growth. How the Culture of Mission Began Jesus was a man on a mission from God, but he did more than pursue the mission. Jesus recruited, trained, and sent apostles on a mission also, but his movement launched from a stronger base than those individuals. Rather, one of Jesus' greatest and most underappreciated accomplishments was to establish a culture of mission among his followers that perpetuated itself for generations. On the strength of the culture of mission that Jesus instilled in his disciples, his way took over the Roman world and established itself in large portions of Africa and Asia in a few centuries. Mission-driven individuals can be mighty, but they are short-lived. A culture of mission, on the other hand, has staying power. Though it must be maintained and renewed in each generation, it has a way of keeping itself going long after the originators are gone. The only way to shape and keep a culture of mission in a church is with missional leadership. The supreme model for that is Jesus himself. Jesus' culture of mission, Luke chapters 6 through 9. Our case study for how Jesus started with a culture of mission is Luke chapter 6 verses 12 through chapter 9 verse 56. These four chapters survey the experience of the twelve from the time Jesus constituted them as a special team in Galilee to the beginning of Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem. The twelve form the core that Jesus was preparing to perpetuate the movement he started. The culture he would establish among these men would set the tone for the church for hundreds of years. As Luke recounts it, after 30 years of personal mission preparation, two chapters concisely summarize what Jesus' mission looked like for as much as two years, announcing the coming kingdom of God, teaching with authority, healing, casting out demons, hanging out with sinners, royally ticking people off, especially Pharisees, 
and calling people to follow him as disciples. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus chose 12 disciples for an especially close relationship with him. He begins to establish the leadership culture immediately with a name he gives the group, apostles. This English word is borrowed from the Greek term meaning envoy. It is the official representative of an important person, in this case, the king, sent forth to speak on his behalf. Thus, mission is built into Jesus' team language from the beginning. The top leaders in the Jesus movement are not rulers or governors or directors or managers. They are envoys, men without authority of their own who are sent on a mission with a message. From observing and listening to Jesus as disciples, the twelve had already learned about the kingdom of God, obedience, healing, sinners, forgiveness, opposition, and Jesus' unique and mysterious relationship to God. Now, as apostles, they relearn the same lessons, but the demands of Jesus' teaching are even more intense and his deeds even more dramatic than before. Finally, in Luke 9, Jesus sends the apostles out in pairs to do what he had been modeling for them for months. Jesus states their mission succinctly. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Verse 2. The apostles get the message, but they promptly go out proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Verse 6. When they get back, their debrief is interrupted by crowds thronging to Jesus, so he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Verse 11. Is the mission clear enough? It is to go, proclaim the kingdom, and heal. Then the twelve learn new crucial lessons. Jesus moves from teaching the apostles the mandate of mission and the method of mission to the manner of mission. He explains that he is the anointed one who will come in the glory of the Father and the holy angels, but he will submit to suffering and death and resurrection before that happens. Therefore, the model of greatness that he exemplifies consists in humble service and submission. Jesus even puts a little kid in front of the apostles' faces to illustrate the point. He also has to order the apostles not to interfere with an unknown stranger who is casting out demons in Jesus' name because that man is a partner in the mission too. All of this instruction reinforces and amplifies the culture of mission. The mission is all. The Culture of Mission Challenge, Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. The primacy of mission in Jesus' ministry is on display yet again in the episode that immediately follows. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus says, in essence, Okay, guys, you're as ready as you can be so far. Now we're going to Jerusalem so I can get killed. What the text actually says is, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He resolutely set his face. Is it possible to describe a missional attitude more vividly? Remember that Luke was a physician and knew the human body well. He uses and repeats this idiom twice in the passage. It is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 50 verse 7, where the suffering servant says, I have set my face like flint. The bottom line, when Jesus pivots to make a beeline to the cross, one could see mission in his disposition. But there is a hiccup on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus sends messengers ahead to prepare a village of Samaritans to accommodate his group. Again, Jesus is always establishing a culture of mission. He is always sending someone somewhere. But the Samaritans, a minority marginalized by the Jews, 
refused to show hospitality to a Jew going to worship at Jerusalem. It is their defiant statement that their own temple on Mount Gerizim is superior. They are offended that Jesus will not validate the worship experience they have going on. It is as if Jesus is walking by the traditional worship service to go to the contemporary one, and the traditional worshipers are a bit hot under the collar. For Jesus, mission trumps everything. And in this case, Jesus' mission trumps the Samaritans' worship preferences. He is not self-important, but he is not nice either. He is not trying to attract a fan club, and he has no interest in pampering them with good customer service. Jesus was not about to express his love for the Samaritans in that village by accommodating them, but by dying for them. So, without argument, he moves on to the next village. The mission remains supreme. Unfortunately, while Jesus is riveted to his mission, his apostles, James and John, bust loose. Their egos are bruised and they blow their stack at the rude Samaritans. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them, they ask in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. To review, the mission is to go, not to stop and fight with distractors. The mission is to proclaim the coming kingdom, not to bring a taste of the last judgment ahead of schedule. The mission is to heal people, not napalm them. James and John know this, or they should. They have been watching Jesus for years for some of the time at close range. His teaching has been explicit. How could they live with the Son of God for that long and think that torching this village is the right move? The problem is mission drift. Mission clarity is not a checkbox. It is a commitment for life. It is not a mission statement. It is a mission state of mind. The all-time perfect leader spent years with his followers and was still developing a culture of mission among them. If Jesus needed to rebuke his disciples after that much time together, what makes any of us think we can do church and not continually clarify mission as the heart of discipleship? This story should explode our confidence in the mission fluency of our churches. The Apostles' Culture of Mission, Acts chapter 1 through chapter 8. With respect to mission methodology and context, the difference between Luke and Acts is something like the difference between parachurch and church. In Luke, the mission is carried out by Jesus and his roving band of followers itinerating from city to city. In the first seven chapters of Acts, on the other hand, the mission is grounded in a particular locale, Jerusalem, and is carried out by an expanded family with many branches, a community of multi-generational families. Despite those differences, however, the culture of mission that Jesus established among his disciples carried over to the new church family. The proof comes at the first crisis in the post-ascension mission in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. The number of disciples was increasing, verse 1, and the apostles faced their first serious growth challenge. They were accustomed to buying bread every day with believers' contributions and distributing it to poor widows whom the whole church family had adopted as their own. But the number of widows became too great, and some were being missed. Worse, the neglected widows were Greek speakers, immigrants to Judea, or pilgrims at Pentecost who never went home, which suggests bias on the part of the apostles, few of whom spoke Greek as their first language. The apostles met the challenge by inviting the church to pick seven men to run the bread distribution. All of those chosen turned out to be Greek speakers, 
Meanwhile, the apostles planned to concentrate their attention on prayer and the ministry of the Word. Verse 4. When I talk through this passage with church leaders, I draw two boxes on a whiteboard, one marked internal and the other external. I ask the leaders, when you hear the phrase, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, which box does that fall into? They always pick the internal box because they are thinking about preaching at worship services for Christians and prayer in small groups consisting of Christians. But how does the book of Acts define prayer and the ministry of the Word? As 100% external activities. The ministry of the Word makes its first appearance when Peter preaches to the crowd at Pentecost, and 3,000 were added to their number that day, chapter 2, verse 41. Just as in Jesus' ministry, the apostles' teaching was continually accompanied by many wonders and signs that filled everyone with awe, verse 43. An example is the lame man who Peter heals in chapter 3. This healing led to another opportunity to proclaim Jesus to the onlookers. The apostles continued to perform miracles among the people, that is, Jews in general, and they met in a section of the temple courts that was the largest and most trafficked area in Jerusalem, chapter 5, verse 12. When the apostles were thrown in jail, an angel let them out and ordered them to stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life, verse 20. The greatest testimony to the external focus of the ministry of the word, however, comes from the Sanhedrin when they hauled the apostles back to court for a dressing down. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, verse 28. But that did not bother the apostles. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, verse 42. What about prayer? After Jesus ascended into heaven, the believers prayed continually for ten days to receive power from the Holy Spirit in order to bear witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth. Chapter 1, verses 7 and verse 14. Then the Spirit came, and they rushed into the streets to proclaim the kingdom in the languages of all the pilgrims to Jerusalem. They met to pray in the temple courts daily, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Chapter 2, verse 47. Peter and John healed the lame man while they were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. Chapter 3, verse 1. After the council rebuked them, they gathered the church together to pray. And what did they ask God for? To enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. Then... After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Chapter 4, verse 31. The conclusion is inescapable. Prayer and the ministry of the word were not internally focused in the early church. To the contrary, they were the church's prime missional activities. So, when the apostles tell the church in Acts chapter 6, we will turn this responsibility to distribute bread over to them, the seven, and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, they are saying, we are going to delegate our internal activities in order to devote ourselves entirely to external activities. These men's priorities are now completely converted from the lower room to the upper room. When the church's top leadership is entirely occupied with going outward with the word of God, you know the culture of mission is firmly established. 
Further proof is that the culture was not limited to the apostles, but extended through the entire church. In Acts 8, the bulk of the church is scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution by Saul. The text is explicit that the apostles remained in the city, so it was only the rank and file who spread through Judea, Samaria, and beyond. But even these disciples preached the word wherever they went. Verse 4. Most illustrative are those who go to Samaria, led by Philip, one of the seven bread distributors. Note that in Jerusalem, the temple was both the mission space and the worship space for believers. The scattered believers have now lost both. So which do they look to recover first, a place to worship or a place to do the mission? As mentioned earlier, the Samaritans had their own temple on the top of a mountain. If worship were the believer's top priority, that is where you would expect to find them. But that is not where they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there, chapter 8, verse 5. The followers of the way could be found with people who needed to hear the word. When they could no longer use the temple in Jerusalem, they replaced it with a new mission space rather than with a new worship space. Redefining Hope And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. Hope is easily neglected as the kid brother of the great virtues of faith and love. But this comes from a misunderstanding of biblical hope. Hope is our unsatisfactory English approximation of the Greek word elpis. Elpis is not a wish or an insecure desire. It is an expectation of the future. It is what we believe is coming that shapes our behavior now. When we are stuck in the church's lower room, our hope lies in the initiatives we take that we wish will bring in more people and make them happier. This temptation must always be resisted, even in the upper room, where our vision may degenerate into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a wish dream of what we want things to be like and how we expect to get them there. But the biblical hope that fueled the culture of mission in the apostles, the early church, and even Jesus himself the hope that fuels the culture of mission for future church is the hope of the coming kingdom, the last judgment, the resurrection from the dead, and the new creation. In other words, our mission is driven by hope that God has already accomplished his mission in the future we have not yet reached, and we are stretching out to take hold of it. Hope means living not only in the aftershock of the cross, but in the before shock of the second coming. It means acting in the future present tense. We do today what we will have done when we give an account of ourselves before the judgment seat of Christ, straining forward to hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. When Robert Coleman, author of the seminal book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, was asked what single message he would share with today's church about making disciples, he fervently replied, Quote, Keep your eye on the heavenly vision. Set your perfection on things above, not on this world. Look to Jesus who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we need to keep always in focus. It's the hope that is set before us. It's the glory that is always in the person of our Lord. It's what God has called us to be. It's what he's making us to be. Like him, created in him. I'm pressing on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants us to be doing in the glory of his grace, unquote. Hope like that feeds a culture of mission that erupts in more worship than a worship service ever could.